You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintzmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest for episode 33 is Asif Ilyas. The music you're currently hearing is one of his recent works for hire for Empire Theatres, which plays before movies over the no-talking, no-texting messages across Canada. This is about a small part of his studio output, where he and his brother produce elaborate pieces for commercials and soundtracks, and also produce other artists. Our main focus today is going to be his 2013 solo album, Synesthesia, where he played all the instruments. We'll talk about the title track, and then the song Electrical. But the work that put him in a position to do both of these current activities was his role with his brother again in the Canadian band Mir, M-I-R, which produced four albums and two EPs between 1998 and 2008, a super-polished, highly visible band in Halifax, Canada. We'll be talking about the song A Day in Your Life from the 2004 album Seven Directions. And finally, we'll wrap up by listening to The Chosen One from the last Mir release, which was the Soldier's Carol Christmas EP from 2008. For more information, check out asifilias.com. I will have played as the introduction, the No Taxidermy. Yes. And I just watched the video of that at your theshire.ca, where you talk about how that is put together. And there's other information about your studio setup and your approach when you're doing commercials or soundtracks that even though this sounds like it's all... Well, tell me about this exact one. I mean, it sounds entirely just a guy in front of his computer, but then there's these awesome drums that are real. Yeah, real. I mean, it's becoming a rarity, I think, at least in, in a lot of circles that a lot of the music we're hearing is done, you know, in Logic. The drummers are, are so good that virtual drumming is incredible samples. But I don't know, you just sometimes I feel like I do it just for myself, just to play, because it's more fun to actually play instruments there other than click around MIDI notes. I think in scoring and doing commercial music, timelines and all dictate that you try and use these tools as much as possible. But we have our studio. I have it set up in such a way that we can still be pretty quick, but actually use the real instruments. So that launched, am I right, as Mir was wrapping up or after Mir wrapped up 2008? I see where your last release is for that. Yeah, that's right. I started doing film and TV soundtrack music very early on, probably mm-hmm. around 2001, maybe. We had come home from a tour in Germany and we were trying, you know, you're constantly trying to figure out what to do next. And a friend of mine who was a filmmaker, he called me up and said, do you do music for film? And I said, sure, maybe. uh, (laughs) Yeah, I think I can do that. And he said, well, I've got this documentary I'm working on. And, And so his producer took a leap of faith because I'd never done anything except for some really minor little tiny films here and there, like short stuff. And then I did it. And some of the guys in the band at the time, we did some instrumentation as well. And, and it won at a film festival here. The documentary actually won and it won Best Score. And that was right out of the gate. So I was really lucky to be able to use that little accolade to kind of say, hey, I, I do this now. And that started the other job, other than being in a band, was doing music for film. Yeah, so I'm trying to give folks a a quick sense of your overall career arc to get us fairly rapidly to the first song. So the first song is going to be the title track from Synesthesia, 
from your, I guess, first solo album, 2013. This is after four albums and two EPs from Mir between 1998 and 2008. And so just tell a little about how did that work in terms of what I was picturing was, oh, the band is dead. Right. (laughs) I need to do something else and I'll get this studio thing going and do some soundtracks and then years later, oh, I guess I've got all this stuff set up. I might as well record a solo album with myself playing all of the instrumental parts, but that seems wrong. Tell me where where that picture is wrong. (laughs) It's funny. I never really had any plan whatsoever other than the fact that I was in a band before Mir even then. I went to school here in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and right out of high school, I wanted to be a pilot. I loved airplanes. I was accepted to Royal Military College. wanted to fly F-18s in Cold Lake, Alberta. Then I we won a talent contest in the band I was in high school. And somebody said, you should try songwriting. You think you have a knack for it. He was a hobby engineer producer. So I joined a band and I talked to my dad, said, I don't want to do math or engineering or anything anymore. I want to play guitar. Thankfully, my dad was pretty supportive. Joined a band. But I took a year off to learn music theory because I wanted to go to school because that was the deal. He, my dad said, you can, you, know, you can do whatever you want, but go to university. So in university, I met a bunch of people, formed a band. We got signed pretty quickly to a subsidiary of Warner here in Canada. And what, what was that it's band? Called Big Picture. Which- it's called okay. Big Picture. You'll never, you won't find anything on the net. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> you, it's, it's pre-anything. And we were not big enough for anything to have stuck. So it's kind of interesting. It's actually really neat because you can usually go back and find a lot. But there's this netherworld in the mid-90s of stuff that uh, unless you achieved a certain level, I did find one Value Village, which is this tape, basically out of the garbage skip, everyone. So the tapes must have ended up somewhere there in secondhand place. That band had a lot of world music influence. I was writing a lot of music that was still pop but it had a lot of different world music elements in it and it was very it was a kind of a cross between the dave matthews band and the wiggles if you know who the wiggles are from australia (laughs) (laughs) so as you can see we tried to bury that one but i mean the dave matthews part was really great because it was progressive anyway out of that we really had a my brother and i were getting tired the scene the brit rock scene was quite vibrant in the mid 90s and we really took to it. We loved it. We both grew up our very early years in England. And right out of around there, 1998, we formed Mir, almost as a rebellion against all the happy, crazy, colorful world music. And Mir came out of that. And I should say, I'm always very jealous of anybody that has a brother, a sibling (laughs) that can sing harmony with them, because that kind of blend in vocal textures is not, only genetics can make that happen. In quite that way. Yeah, I know. You're totally right. The blend of it, also the way you say things, the way you say words, naturally kind of. You have to be in the band with the person for several years, and then you're kind of used to each other, and you're more or less adapt to each other. <laughs> Adam, our drummer in Mir, he became, I mean, he's, our, he's my, my other brother. Like After a while, like you said, we all started, our three parts were really great. And we sort of embarked on, on Mir for a little bit, and Adam wasn't in the band at the time. But we went to a conference here where Nick Van Eed from The Cutting Crew was speaking. And I, of course, at the end of the seminar, I gave him a CD. He had a pile of CDs, literally, I would say, no exaggeration, two feet tall in front of him from everyone who was giving CDs. 
And then I thought, well, why not? And he's like, oh, nice to meet you. I put your CD there and I went off. And about, I'd say later that summer, I got a call from my mom and she said, some guy from England called and he really liked your CD and he wants to talk to you. And I happened to be in England at the time. So I was like, really? That's crazy. So I called and then he was down in Brighton, invited me down there. And he basically took Mir to the next level because we were able to do showcases and we spent, it would have been eight years pretty much doing the rock band thing the proper way. We were never signed except in Germany, but the whole time we were doing that, we always think I was 26, 27. So we were starting late in terms of rock band stuff, but we had a very good manager at the time, Andre Bourgeois, and he kept telling me all the time, start laying the seeds for when this ends. <laughs> so, ah. you know, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of managers will sort of try and take you and do everything is possible to focus on the moment and get you as big as possible. But he was always looking way ahead. And I'm really thankful of that now because if I didn't listen to him and we didn't start learning how to record our own music, learning how to get through this, what was coming, which was basically everyone being able to do everything, I wouldn't be doing film scoring now, which at this age is very valuable because I'm still playing music, even though we had a great run with Mir. So let's do a little more Mir history when we get to our third song, but just to get to some music, your current thing. So give a brief introduction. Synesthesia, this is the title track from the album. What should people expect here? I can't get pop out of my system when I'm writing. I always try and write something that's catchy, but this song pushes the envelope of thematic stuff for pop. I've always admired writers that challenge the listener. Synesthesia is a term for the crossing of the senses. It's a neurological condition that some people have debilitating where their senses are crossed, where they touch something and then they can see a color or or they taste something and they can hear a sound. And I just found it fascinating because my theory is everyone has a bit of that to different degrees. That's why it makes people have a knack for doing something, maybe a little, have an edge over someone else. Whenever I've seen a landscape, I've heard things. Like I just hear chords or a melody. So I, I wanted to try and put it down in a song. And of course, a complicated concept like that yields a complicated song. And that's what this song is. But I, I tried to explain it and use some rhythms, some atypical rhythms. It's in 6-4. And yeah. yeah, so it's there's a lot to take in. The local radio station here sent me back a note about this song saying, I don't even understand it. <laughs> that, that was all he said. And send him back a note. Go listen to a police record. What is wrong yeah, with you? Exactly. You didn't. You never heard synchronicity. What is? And you know what? Synchronicity. That's a great a reference because I am a huge, as you could probably tell from my album, a complete huge police nut. I wanted to make an album. This album, Synesthesia. I wanted to make the missing link between Synchronicity and Dream of the Blue Turtles. What if we found an album where the police and Branford all got together somewhere on an island somewhere. Yeah. And that's what they came up with. <laughs> Not miss- 
Yes, I had in mind as I was listening to it, and I'm glad that this is not me just imposing this and and, uh, (laughs) that this was intentional, that yes, if the police still had existed as a band by 1992 or something, like this is what it would have sounded like. Maybe some of the synths are a little too nice for that. (laughs) uh, And you played everything on this, right? But there's got to be at least this like intro loop and it has to be automated, right? (laughs) The little, the synthesizer. Yeah, that's Jupiter 4. It's a synthesizer from... Like the mid seventies, I think the one I have is from seventy six, but it's just an arpeggiator. Okay, yeah, it's a, it's a four voice arpeggiator on a. It's similar to the intro to "Save a Prayer" by Duran Duran. That's the Jupiter Eight, which is the Jupiter Four's big brother. 
I was just going through this. The first sound you hear actually is hiss. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that little, as we get into the arpeggio, was that just because the Jupiter is loud or was this an intentional? Nope. That hiss is tape. It's two inch tape. So ah. that is the hiss of tape of a 24 track two inch tape machine. And that's a pretty quiet one at that. I'm, I'm sitting right in front of it. Actually, it's a beast. It weighs 600 pounds. I found it in a studio closeout a few years back and decided to do everything onto tape like they used to, because people can argue for weeks, months, years, whether tape or digital sounds better. But to me, it was the process of recording, having the finite tracks it's very difficult, well, at least for me. I don't have the skill. There were some real wizards at editing tape, splicing and making cuts. So using tape forces you to think the old way and perform the old way, and it forces you to practice your part before putting it down. And in that process, that meditative process of practicing and rehearsing that part, new stuff comes out, new approaches, new things that I find when you do it with digital, you fix it and you don't have that journey is not there anymore. So I kind of force myself by using tape to do that. Well, particularly when you're recording all by yourself like this, that makes it especially liable to let me just record a little bit and then punch in or something like that. So you're just playing the entire, when you're playing the bass part here, you're playing it through the whole song. That's the whole song. Yeah. My brother co-produced it with me in the sense that he let me make all the artistic decisions, but he was there to say, no, you got to do that again. That wasn't good. Cause you always need that second oh, yeah. opinion. Drums are one of my favorite instruments. I've always drummed, but I've never drummed for an album until this one. I would play a part and he would show up. We'd be working on something else, a score or something. And I'd say, let me play you synesthesia or electrical whatever. I'll just play that for you. And then he would come on the monitor and go, yeah, you're not ready yet. That was a big part of it. So I'd say, okay, give me another week. Then I'd play it for him again. He'll go, yeah, you're not ready for it. You're not ready yet. You're not ready. So, And then when I was ready, he's like, okay, now we can press play on the tape machine because I had to play it all the way through. And there was only some punches, like maybe I would play the outro of a song as a punch in on the tape but most of the performances you hear on there except for i'd done a couple of saxophone stuff digitally when everything was flown into the computer because i'm a total hobby saxophonist i'm i don't even know the notes i'm playing yeah that i was wondering <laughs> i mean that that is some damn good i thought you got a, a session guy in at least for that part but until i just saw on your website that nope every note is you i'm putting myself out there because there's some incredible saxophonists around here But I used to play clarinet in school when I was in junior high. So I had a little bit of that, but my clarinet broke and I had always wanted to play saxophone, but the school program, they rented you, they gave you stuff and they had run out of saxophones. And then I was on the list for sax, but then my dad spent the summer because I was all disappointed. He said, oh, clarinet's amazing. So he, you know, showed me Acrobilk records and tried to make me feel good about playing the clarinet, but I'd always wanted to play the sax. So when my clarinet broke, it fell off a shelf. I never replaced it for years and years. And when I was doing this record, I thought, I think it might be time to replace that clarinet with a saxophone. (laughs) So I went and got one and then learned it. So what you're hearing on that album is probably about six or eight months of just noodling around. Well, building up an amateur again. I mean, geez. Yeah. And I remember 
the bottom of my lip was like, I would feel like I was cutting through it with my teeth. That was awful. I dabble in a lot of instruments and do that kind of thing, you know, for recordings. And I could do a tin whistle or something, but like an actual saxophone. Yeah, I had borrowed somebody's for six months at one point, and that was not going anywhere. That was not going to become something actually listenable anytime soon. Every instrument has this thing. The saxophone is such an expressive instrument. It's a voice, right? It's just incredible. I'm in awe of people who can just go crazy on it. But I love melody, so it's an amazing instrument to write melody on. And that's what you're hearing is just, you know, my melodic parts. But that was one of the only instruments that I had done a few takes on digitally. That was the only instrument. Yeah, so you've got just about every element of the police in here, but then you've got the synth, the whoop, 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 that kind of offbeat thing, which is more of the, I was thinking the... Peter Gabriel from about that same era, the, I guess Larry Fast playing it probably or somebody like that. So which, which was that, the Prophet? All the instruments, the Jupiter 4 and the okay. Juno 106. So any long notes you hear are the Juno 1, my brother's Juno 106, Roland Juno. And then the, the Roland Jupiter 4 basically does everything else. Most of the songs were those cyclical arpeggiating things were my, that was my click track. So I'd written the songs around those parts. So when you hear something that's sort of repetitive, that's my click track that I was using because I didn't have your standard metronome. I was just playing to those. Actually, there's a Nord sample in in electrical. That's right. I mean, it sounds like with this 6-4 thing that you wrote it starting with the drum part, but tell me, how did this actually come together? Yeah. So again, it's the the Jupiter 4. I had this rolling line that was in six. Where I was born, I was born in Sri Lanka. There is a rhythm. It's called a baila beat and it's in 6-4. And it's got that sort of two over three thing always happening. It's almost like a jig in Celtic music, which is, you know, I'm familiar with here in Nova Scotia. Celtic music's a a very big thing. But that rhythm, that rolling six feel was the basis of it. And also one of my favorite tracks ever, which was Synchronicity One, has the same feel. So it's got same six four. And so I... I kind of started building that and it all came together because in the same way synesthesia was a concept, same with synchronicity, also had the same first three letters, (laughs) but it came together really quickly. That song came together really quickly. It was the synth and the bass. The bass line was a huge part of it. And then the drums, basically that's just what made sense to me. I was playing a modified Biola, Sri Lankan Biola beat, really. It's just a coincidence that it has the hallmarks of, especially in that, so you come in with the eighth notes just with everything else, but then almost immediately it's like you're putting in like the end of four and the end of six to yeah, that's a very make it not sound like it's in six anymore. It just That's a very Sri Lankan thing to do. That beat, like, so you're going, so if you have that's the main thing and then okay well and just the fact that by the end of the song like it just dissolves in that yeah the whole just bam 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 these all which i was picturing like a big band sort of gesture but okay that's sri lankan Yeah, that's well, it's, it comes from that kind of thing. It's also very Celtic. There's a lot of three feel. And Sri Lankan baila beat originates from the Cafrinha, which is from Portugal. And the Portuguese brought that rhythm to Sri Lanka when they conquered it in the, um, I don't know, somewhere 17th, 18th century. And so it, it stuck. That beat became very 
much uh, fused. So it's a, it actually has its roots in Portugal, which is pretty interesting. Because if you go to Brazil, you will hear those rhythms. You'll hear those six rhythms in Brazil. You'll hear them in the West Indies. And I have a theory that that is where Stuart and Sting and all those guys and Andy, they were being influenced by those rhythms. And so there's a weird DNA that links that those Brazilian rhythms, the Portuguese stuff to Sri Lankan. So I'm really familiar with them. But it's funny, though, you wouldn't hear them mostly in pop music. And when I try and get musicians to play that song, Synesthesia, with me, it's a difficult beat. It's a difficult beat. My brother gets it. <laughs> but some, you know, and fantastic musicians. But it's actually really funny to try and teach a drummer the baila beat. Oh, no. I, I mean, I can see establishing the 6-4, like, okay, that's a challenge. You need a, a good drummer who understands some different time signatures to do that. Yeah. But then just the subtleties of the things that drums and bass and the band is matching together, all these off hits toward the end, like it really gets fairly unpredictable, I can say. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's why it makes so much sense to me, that song, rhythmically. But I know some just kick-ass brilliant musicians here who are like okay let me try that again let me let me i could they get it but it's just not a natural thing it's actually really interesting i played a show in barbados earlier this year and i played both those songs synesthesia electrical and it was a steel drum player an incredible um andre ford he played steel drum and he played the cajon and I expected when I was rehearsing with him to show him this six eight six four rhythm, like okay, I'm gonna, and right out of the gate, bang, he got it. Like he was like, yeah, of course, that's exactly it. And he knew it as if he had known it for years. And that just goes to show if you're surrounded or if you grow up with certain rhythms, if you grow up with certain feels. Like I can play blues guitar a little bit, but it's something a bit alien to me. So I can do a reasonable facsimile, but for someone who's been playing blues riff since they were young, it's a totally different thing, right? So it's a similar way. And I was trying to think of parallels. I've certainly heard other songs that do this, but it seems fairly unusual to have the chorus be almost like an instrumental break. Like you've been playing the song and then you go rock out yeah. do, 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 do. and then, you know, but no, that's every chorus. Yeah. Just got the one word there basically until then vocals come in for the second half. But as opposed to just starting with the taste of such of summertime or something, but it's really all about this baseline driven thing. That's what the song is. Yeah. That speaks to a lot of my writing is that trying to find that complete synergy between what the song's trying to say lyrically or melodically, but the song, what what's going on with the engine underneath it. That's important. I think a lot of my favorite musicians have used that, that way of writing, where what's going on underneath is just as important. In fact, getting back to the police or even Paul Simon, all these people that really influenced me, the bands themselves really were an integral part of the song. And sometimes you hear these stories of Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers a bit sour grapes that Sting took all the credit. I'm with them because even though I admire Sting's writing and he's an incredible lyricist and melodic thing, the sound of those songs are as much the approach of the drums or the guitar or the arrangement. And so when I write a song, I kind of take the same approach. The bass line in Synesthesia is probably almost more important than the lyrics. So... You know, and the drum part, they are elements that are as important as smoke on the water, or the riff in smoke on the water. 
Well, yeah, just the fact that you've got a fairly uniform first verse or, you know, first two stands of first verse, and then you have the chorus. And then when you get back to what should be the second verse, well, it's playing instrumentally what it was, at least at first, at the beginning, but it's a new vocal melody, almost like a bridge. Yeah, that's right. So the machine that's underneath the lyrics and the melody, that's the driving force, as opposed to a song where the melody and the lyrics are the repetitive or the A, B, A, B, C, B, B, B structure is happening in the music rather than in the, the lyrics. There's a lot of songs that I love that are like that. And I don't know where that comes from. I'm not sure whether that was the influence of world music on a lot of those People I mentioned before, like Peter Gabriel and Sting and whatever. But I know Paul Simon, same thing. A lot of those things were born out of jam, like just a jam. And I think that that's a really interesting way to give more focus to these instruments that are playing. I think songwriting in general is very focused on the chords and the melody and the lyrics. But there's a lot that can be said with rhythms. And then what sounds like the actual bridge, the crossing of the senses when the ears become the lenses, all the rods and cones turn into microphones... You save that till just about the very end of the song, till right before it's going to fade out. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, this album, as opposed to a lot of the Mirror stuff, I always want to write with that evolutionary approach to the song, where the song doesn't really have to say everything out of the gate. You have to wait for it. Mm -hmm. And that comes from, I guess, a lot of progressive music. In fact, a lot of people, critics, record company, whatever, when they were looking at our material, they would say it was progressive. Now, I didn't see it as progressive rock. Because when I think of progressive rock, I think of King Crimson or Yes. I always thought of it as pop music, pop rock, but with a few of those challenging twists to it. But I think people are so focused on if their song doesn't have that flow, it's not a pop song anymore. But a lot of the greatest pop songs in history, you song like Everybody Wants to Rule the World, that does have a verse and a chorus, but it evolves. There's things being said by different instruments throughout the song. Well, yeah, I usually think of early 80s pop, which is what I was listening to yeah. in middle school, as post-prog. And it's funny, though, that bands that have the same exact audience as a musician they're night and day because like the police, like Stuart Colburn was coming out of curved air, you know, an actual prog band, like they knew Sting was old, you know, they were, they were 30 plus, I believe yeah. when they started that. So they were very much steeped in that or XTC is another band that I really like that. T totally. Yeah. Grew out of that. So that simplifying things becomes like an act of rebellion, but you have that knowledge that's backing you up musically. And then what Tommy Two-Tone or something, you know, they, they might be giants did a song called XTC versus Adam Ant, <laughs> which is, it's exactly that things that were popular at the same time, but do they show consciousness of what happened in the, in the natural outcome of late Beatles through the seventies or do they not? Are they just coming at it? We're just doing a pop song. Like you could still do even straight ahead drums. And, anyway, well, it's funny because like I don't think of that stuff. But what you're saying is very accurate. Like the fact that they all came from there and they were dumbing things down to a certain extent. Some of the most interesting music I feel comes from that. Look where Peter Gabriel came. A lot of people who are true Gabriel fans don't like the album So or anything before Security. But I love all the stuff before then as well. But there's something to be said about these very progressive or very avant-garde writers trying to write for the masses. And I think there was that sweet spot. And I know I've got friends who 
keep saying, oh, you're such a mid-80s hound. But I think there was a sweet spot. And it was around, I think, 82 to 86, 87, around there. So people, people have a Just theory. happened to be during your formative years. Exactly, Is that, exactly. What a coincidence. <laughs> what a coincidence. <laughs> that, that was the best music ever. <laughs> <laughs> I've had this fun argument with, with a lot of friends who are, uh, one in particular is a huge music aficionado and he says the same thing he's like that's because you were 14 years old and that's a textbook where you would think was the best music but i i love music a lot of music that i listen to for fun just hanging around the house is all from the 70s i love bossa nova jobim a lot of really early strange left of center music from the late 60s stuff like that I i love old stuff i just find that when Things started evolving through the 90s into the 2000s. When we were in a band, I was really confused as to what was going on musically. So a lot of my writing harkens back to those 60s, 70s, 80s approaches. Well, this is a great way to segue to the second song, Electrical, which has a lot of the same police elements, but a little different vocal approach. I've been listening to some disco. I've been... uh... (laughs) You know, somebody told me, and I did not even think of it. I just thought... That just made sense. That melody just made sense. And singing it like that made sense. You got to mix up your vocal range. You can't just sing the same way every time. So like, oh, let's just try a thing up here. Yeah. (laughs) But I, you know, I'm a huge, huge Bee Gees fan. So that's one thing that probably, but I kid you not, I swear, I was not even thinking of Bee Gees. It just happened. But to sing up in the falsetto range. And there was something about that song, that electrical, it just felt like, Again, that synesthetic thing, it just felt like if it was going to be really super exciting and electrical to me, the melody had to be up there. The melody had to be up in the upper range, almost like it was glowing. If you think about seeing sound, that melody up there, it's like it's glowing. It's like an arc. That's just to describe it, not to get too esoteric. Between us 
So you've got another loop. Which synth is doing that? <laughs> Now, I'm pretty sure that that was a arpeggiator on the Jupiter being fed by a noise from a Nord modular. With a delay pedal. Yeah, the delay was coming from a tube tape echo, a full-tone tube tape echo, which is a tape delay. Actually, has a little tiny quarter-inch tape in it. And you've even got the sting, whoo, except, yeah. you know, two octaves <laughs> higher. Than, yes. Than, Yep. No, I mean, that song vocally, definitely I was channeling something from Zenyatta Mandata, which is probably, I think, it's a toss-up between that and Synchronicity. Synchronicity is lyrically, but Zenyatta Mandata, just groove and absolute exciting band vibe. And I know Sting does a lot of that stuff in When the World is Running Down and... Well, and this harmonized sax rift. Oh, yeah. Which I was trying to think. There's some song from the early 80s, Don't Be Messing Around. Yeah, no, but, uh, Stop You Messing Around. Yes, there you go. Yeah, that, that was totally referencing that. And you're the first person in the entire time of that song being out there. First person to pick that up. So congratulations. Again, I'm glad to hear that this was deliberate and that it's not just me imposing stuff. Nope. Because it's very easy when you hear... You know, somebody's trying to be creative. In my college band, we were always trying to kind of outdo each other in terms of wacky theatrical stuff that we were putting in. And then somebody would say, well, that kind of sounds like the Muppets or something. Like, <laughs> no, that was not the intention. That was, <laughs> I was going for Queen or something, not the... Yeah. Oh, no, that's happened to me too. <laughs> yeah, no, but this definitely, that sax line, I was paying homage to uh, the specials, yeah. Lyrically, right? The, the uh, let's talk about both these songs together. Then, in terms of you're saying how with synesthesia, you're trying to make the backing music reflect the lyrics, which because the theme of the lyrics in synesthesia is inherently cross sensory, right? Yeah. So unless you're doing something. I'm trying to think, think what that means in music. I mean, the two parts of music, I mean, you've got the tones and then you've got the feel. So that having an interaction of percussion with tone, that's almost the only thing that comes close to touch and hearing coming together. You're asking if, if lyrically I was thinking of that? Just how you're thinking of this. When I think of the interaction between lyrics and music, it's mostly just in terms of how depressing do I want it to sound? And I, and I like a lot of bands that play with, you know, we're singing really happy music, but the lyrics are piss poor miserable. And that sort of reflects an ambivalence in the way that I actually express depression or something like that. But both these songs are so very, I want to say song oriented. That's not a good term. It's that the song is about its own melody. Sort of each song has the strictly musical part of it. And then the theatrical part yeah, of it. Yeah, um, yeah. So I've heard this contrast, Yeah, Roxy music, you know, Brian Ferry was all about the theatrical part, and then Eno, when it was there at the start, was all actually providing some musical basis, or in the Velvet Underground, it's Lou Reed is providing all the talky-talky, here's how cool I am stuff that makes it over the top, but John Cale was the one who was actually providing the underlying musical meat that made it special on those first albums. And so when I'm looking at this, I'm just wondering about the relationship between the music and the lyrics in that in some ways it seems very separable on the first song. Electrical, it almost seems like 
I'm doing this disco song, and so I'm going to write some goofy disco sex lyrics to put on, and there's not... (laughs) No, I think all the lyrics on the album were topics that were relevant to me, like now, later, much later in my life. So I think in Mir, if you listen to a lot of that material, there was a lot of external views of looking out at the world and commenting on... Mm -hmm. political views or or the state of things and all that stuff there is a bit of that on synesthesia but it was a much more personal album so even synesthesia itself even though i was trying to explain a strange you know psychological concept i connected it to something that i was going through personally and in electrical it was the same thing the lyrics were just basically they were just candy on top of a song that made me feel that way, that excitement, this excitement, that electricity. And so, you know, like when I met my wife, Alison, in Australia, like that was a very influential trip. It was a really weird trip in that it was off the cuff. It was one of those crazy, I'm going, I didn't know the day before. So I just, all of a sudden, I found myself in a place I'd never been before, traveling around just basically in this whirlwind of, you know, you're falling in love with someone and it's just... So a lot of the lyrics were this zany approach. And when I heard the music to Electrical, it's like, this makes sense. It just makes sense. It's this kind of wacky, fun thing. Yeah, so that's why they probably connect a little more. So were the lyrics for Synesthesia were written afterward? Um, Yeah. Because that, I mean, is so concept-oriented. I could see starting a song with that in mind and kind of writing the music to try to reflect that. But you're saying even in that case... Even in that case, but even in that case, that my brain works in really strange ways. Like the synesthesia, the beginning introduction notes of the Jupiter 4, mm-hmm. synesthetically, they, they reminded me of dripping water droplets in a rainforest. That sound, as soon as I was playing around with the Jupiter 4 and I heard that sound, it immediately took me back to Fraser Island on Australia in the rainforest. And I just remember seeing all the moss and the things dripping off leaves. And that's what that sound did. So my brain just puts almost like a post-it note on that. It's like, that's what this song will be about. And so no matter what the arrangement ended up becoming, in the back of my brain, that synthesizer sound and all the things that are born from that inspiration, everything that crystallized from that source has to harken back to that type of lyric. So then I started talking about Fraser Island and all these experiences of being there in a strange, exotic place. Sure, okay. So the music starts as this autonomous, what I was calling song-oriented, yeah. but autonomous is a better yeah, word, yeah. a self-contained thing, and then you get the lyric idea out of it, and then it feeds back into the rest of the arrangement, into the details. Yeah. At some point in my songwriting, there's always something that colors the rest of it. There's a milestone that I reach, and it could be the very first sound I hear, It could be a certain chord pattern, it could be a rhythm, it could be a drum part, it could be anything. But I'll hit that spot and an alarm will go off. It'll go bing, bing, bing. That's the song right there. What does that make you feel like? Then I'll start going to the lyrics at that point. So then everything that happens from that point is colored by that flagged moment. Was the sax sort of an afterthought with electrical? You'd written other things and just put that in as a stopper between the vocals? Or was that there from the start as well? That was pretty quick because I remember that song, the bass line was my flag moment was that when I heard that it was this playful bass line 
really sort of tropical sounding baseline that everything else came out of and same lyrics like i said earlier that same the saxophone was like reggae it was it was ska then i thought oh then i think when i thought ska i thought specials and then the message to you rudy melody came in my head and i played it once and it's like that fits there for me with songwriting it's a struggle at first but then when i hit that mark it everything just falls into place you know it's like finding out a move in chess you don't know what's happening and then you get your plan and then you can just go right and it's checkmate I was trying to think what makes those police-like lines distinctive. What part of it is that it resolves right before the one. That it resolves on the pickup. My notation when I write, when I pass things out to people, I'm not going to actually write charts with measures in them, but I'll write lines of lyrics and put chords above them and maybe put a, if it's a half notes, I'll put a dash between them. But the one thing that is essential to making people be able to follow is if the chord is going to hit on the upstroke right before the beat, then I put it italics. And that happens so often. And then the question becomes, so if what I write is, and so that's what I hand out, then the question is, what is the drummer going to do with that? Obviously, you're your own drummer here, but often drummers, they'll just play through it like you did. you know. And I never even know until like I actually get with a band whether I would want the drums to actually go, to like emphasize those to make them sort of bigger but i guess the thing with with sting is it no it it stands out it's just bass it's not even the kick doesn't even do it along with it does it no i mean sometimes it does like he'll he'll like Stuart copeland will just accent it you know a lot of like i know that he was one of the first drummers in pop to really bring that reggae kick drum on the three you know one two yeah that and he brought that in the walking on the moon it was a huge worldwide hit with that thing so but i think a lot of tropical in the tropics mostly now i could be wrong i'm not like a ethnomusicologist by any means but i know that from the music that i've listened to in those tropic zones there's implied beat is a huge thing even in sri lankan music it's a big thing you're trying to get the listener to think about or feel a rhythm but you're not actually playing that rhythm. The musician is not playing. They're playing things either before it. You hear it in Cuban music, in the Cuban bass lines, right? You want people to bop their heads on the one, two, three, four. So like you want people to go da, 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 da. But the bass line is going dum, 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 dum. And so when the bass line's not playing those things, I guess the theory is it's like we're not going to play where we want you to, but you're going to do it. So you're going to feel it more. You're going to feel that one, two, three, four more if we don't play. We're going to dance around it for you. We're going to push you into the one, two, three, four. Or we're going to at least have some maracas going yeah, exactly. in the background, just so you don't get too confused. So you don't get too confused. I mean, the clave beats, same thing. But a lot of that music, and I love putting that in. I love the fact that in reggae, the guitars are on the off, on the ands, but your head is bopping to the ones. So just to return for a second, so I could see how with electrical, how the lyrics would, you know, the energy of the lyrics would come out of the music. And the fact that you throw in, you know, it's been seven years, I feel the same from my head down to my toe, that it actually makes it real and that it's not just, right. <laughs> hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's reflecting back on the fun of an actual, real, long-term relationship. It's another 80s reference. Can you guess it? From my head down to my toes? Not specifically. <laughs> no, you would never think about it. It's Madonna. <laughs> 
from that going to dress you up in my love. I sang it. I sang that lyric thinking, and it took me like a day or two to go, why did I sing that? And I realized I was actually walking down the street and I stopped in my tracks going, oh my goodness, it's dress you up by Madonna. I quoted Madonna. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, that's that kind of stuff that just gets in there subliminally. That is probably not that you were listening to your Madonna albums the same way you were listening to your police albums. No, exactly. It's just, it seeps in there. <laughs> yes. All this supposedly creative original stuff. Like, no, no, no. That's the stuff that got in your head when you were five. Yeah, like, that, exactly. <laughs> you just don't remember where it came no, from. No, totally. <laughs> so the ultimate way that the lyric feeds back into the music, well, at least putting the the shock in there right. that you're quoting one of the most important parts of shock the monkey that with the extended is shock <laughs> yes it's funny in this album i didn't hold back on any of that stuff like when we we're in in mir you know you're working with these different people or managers agents producers or just influence we used most of our albums we all produced ourselves yeah but we we had lots of influences from bands and traveling around touring and you'd play something and you do something and people would say oh you can't do that you you shouldn't do this or you that's not what this type of music should do or so there was all these rules even though we were very experimental you listen to our music it's not middle of the road by any means but most of it is not middle of the road. <laughs> we had a little discussion that it seemed like by the time you got to the OK to Go album, some of those songs, like, wow, that's almost Green Day. That's really supposed to sound exactly what was on the radio at that moment. And you're 100% right. We had met this person in Australia, Nathan, and he, he used to manage Split Ends and Men at Work. And he's a wonderful guy. He took a liking to the band and came all the way over here. He brought a partner that he was working with from L.A. And they listened to us and really liked the band. And he used to tour manage certain legs of the police, actually. It was a really exciting time for me because you hear these two veterans of the scene. And they were basically hugely influential in the sound of OK To Go, that album, because they were basically wanting us to come out of this nebulous zone of experimental like you know pushing the envelope of arrangements and all that and just hone everything down and simplify everything because they'd seen us live the three of us we were a very tight three-piece band and our albums did not ever say tight three-piece band they were always strings synths pianos like all sorts of different elements and while they enjoyed or appreciated our ambition to doing that they said you guys have to simplify it when we watch you live that's so hard hitting and it's funny if you had seen Mirror at the time it was just the three of us playing the songs from the records that sounded nothing like them you'd hear a song like a day in your life and it was just like a three-piece rock version of that and i think nathan and alan they liked that and so they kind of pushed us towards that and i'm very proud of okay to go but it was definitely much more straight down the road rock and not really where my heart was i'm not a straight ahead rocky kind of guy well let's hear where your heart was so from 2004 the seven directions album a day in your life the song you just mentioned which has i really like this song. this should have been a massive single it's got the bittersweet symphony from verve kind of like a big string thing that comes out it was a contender it made the top five choices for the winner of german idol so back in the, I can't remember, but it would have been like when the Idol franchise was just peaking, I think somewhere in the late noughts, I heard that the publisher that I had there, he was like, they're looking at it and didn't get chosen, obviously, but that was A Day in Your Life was one. And I can't even remember the guy's name. I should look it up and put it on my bio, but <laughs> it just, 
Yeah. Well, that's pretty impressive if you're writing vocal lines that somebody feels like this is going to show off my voice. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because it's the song is actually not that dynamically vocal. Like it was weird. How do you do the the little uh, rap monotone? <laughs> is that, was that part of it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, oh gosh, that's so, yeah. I forgot about that. I do do that. But... Well, let's play the song so we get all the elements out here, and then we'll talk more about it. Tell me when it's getting better. Work so hard and searching for the meaning of it all. I know that we can find a way to live within our dreams forever. I hear the sound of a deep meditation drifting through the mind in the imagination. I make my way through the morning haze and the traffic backs up to the good old days. Is there something deeper we
right out of the gate. The first note, I like when there's no intro. It's just the intro is over words. <laughs> <Yes>. Words are... <laughs> words. That, right there. I had a lot to say back then. Yeah, so what are you trying to say in this song? You wanted to talk about the lyrics of this a little bit. That song, it was basically a window on how I was feeling about the industry and the struggle of trying to slog it through and changing the way your approach is and believing in something and chasing this pie in the sky and people around you like family friends my ex it's basically a song to her saying this is what we're doing it's just the machine we're in it but what if i was wrong about all of this and that's that notion of that self-doubt that every musician trying to or in any career really but most of it's very intense in music it's like you put all of your eggs in this basket and then you're saying these are the things I'm doing every day. I'm hearing all these influences and and it's the struggle and everything. But then the chorus hit, it was like, but what if I was wrong about everything? And then you kind of sit there in silence going, it's that realization that what if everything I've put into my career, everything I've put into my life thus far has been a wrong choice. It's a really super depressing song. But the warm and cuddly feeling. <laughs> That's exactly that interaction between music and lyrics I was talking about that I've written here. Call it a beauty drop where suddenly and now we're all oh, and it's the strings have come in and it's this beautiful, thick guitar riff and. I was trying to figure out, like, what are all the things that's contributing to that? You've got a few synth parts. You've got the ha-ha-ha vocals. It's the tambourine really sells it, though. That's the thing that makes it sound like it's Christmas time now or whatever. The warmth has come. You mentioned Bittersweet Symphony, and again, spot on, because I think at the time that was, you know, I mean, it was like, what, seven years later after that song. But that song always stuck with me in that, you know, had this epic string thing, the Rolling Stones, whatever. But Richard Ashcroft's lyrics, it was this uplifting song, but he was talking about you're a slave to the money, then you die. That always stuck with me, the juxtaposition between this beautiful uplifting song and then these lyrics that were basically saying oh my God, my life is, I have to take a second look at everything. But And so, Day in Your Life, there was a little bit of hope in that song, in that in the last, what if I was wrong about everything? Well, it's just a day in your life that you're going to think this. Just keep going. Keep focusing on the moment. It's only one day. And so there's a bit of hope there. And I think that in the same way, Bittersweet Symphony has got that too. In its title, Bittersweet. Yeah. Right, so, yeah. So the arrangement here is, really lush and there's so many little tricks i mean i was commenting on synesthesia all the the little subtleties it has but in that you actually just had to play everything in one take not just in one take but continuously through the song the fact that you don't have that here and you can go in digitally and tweaks to i don't know this is 2003 or so when you're putting this together obviously there's a lot of pitch correction and things on it and you've got the talk box what are you doing for that second vocal it's not a talk box actually (laughs) I think we recorded that on an old, it was Cubase, or Nuendo, actually Nuendo maybe. We had set up everything in this house in, in a place called Peggy's Cove, which is a beautiful, beautiful spot. It's very famous, actually. It's just near there in Nova Scotia. And we secluded ourselves for like almost a month in that spot. We had a bunch of plugins. It was the beginning of everyone recording for themselves, and we were still navigating through. In that album, I had even layered there was this one song i remember not day in your life but i had layered myself like 15 times to sound like a bulgarian women's chorus that's how you know like late at night when you i'm sure shahab and adam were sleeping at the time and i'm sitting there 
coming up with some gibberish, which sounded like gibberish was actually Bulgarian, but I don't speak Bulgarian. You know, you're discovering recording, you're pushing the envelope of, oh, wow, we can do this now. You're not, you're not in a studio with hours counting down. You've got your own thing. And it was exciting at the time. And I rebelled against it with synesthesia, having all those choices back in recording a day in your life uh, in that album. I got tired of having all those choices. But all the arrangements on that album are a direct result of having a million choices of plugins and all the sure. stuff that was just starting to come. And, you know, <laughs> of course, I love being able to, like, well, if I don't like that keyboard sound, I'm sure I can find something else. There's, a, there's an endless library of stuff. But yeah. the stuff that I would do in my college band, we had a $4 microphone that was like the thing that would do the equivalent of your talk box sound here that like I would pull out that I, you know, would move from place to place and carry this piece of crap with me because I might on one song at some point use it for a particular vocal effect. And I'm sure it only got on one recording ever. I was talking to Bill Bruford about drilling a hole in the top of a baking pan. It just all these little noise. I mean, we, we had a little toy piano that we took with us like two gigs to, so we could play play it in two songs you don't need to do that <laughs> you don't need to do that i mean it's funny i always equate much to some people's frustration for sure but i always equate making music is like cooking right but the one big difference you know that we can talk about all the analogies between spices and different core things in your plate and everything and all that but the one thing that's strange that's very different is that when you set out in you know, you're in Logic or Nuendo or Pro Tools or whatever. It's like you're cooking inside a grocery store. You have every single thing, every single thing that you can think of in front of you. And that to me is like, it's just overwhelming now. Back in the day, it was exciting. But now it's like, I cannot make fettuccine Alfredo when I'm surrounded by every other choice in the entire world of things to make. And so you have to have so much discipline to just go, no, I only want that and that. I think a lot of music these days, like you hear, showing my age here, but uh, you just hear it and it's just bells and whistles and bells and whistles and bells and whistles and every single thing you can throw at it. In one song, you've got like a million different approaches to a sound. And then you get, of course, there's great music out there, don't get me wrong. But a lot of stuff is, there's so much, you can see that it was like a grab bag of sounds. Like everyone was just picking and, oh, let's try this. Let's try, oh, that's neat. Look at that. A timpani, boom. <laughs> So I find that that discipline is there in a lot of music, but it's also not there. It helps if you're going to not cook in the grocery store and only cook in your home. If you've done a lot of conscientious research as you have, I mean, I'm just looking at your website and you've got, I know you've been doing these solo acoustic shows, right? Yeah. But it's far from just being you strumming an acoustic guitar. It's you strumming an acoustic guitar that is through like five different pedals, <laughs> You know, it's, I don't have any videos up. I've been playing a lot more solo shows. Because of the lack of having a band that's readily available, I use the looper. But now I use a bass guitar, an electric guitar, my saxophone, the acoustic, and then some Lin drum loops on the looper. So I can do synesthesia somewhat closer to what's on the album by myself on stage. But layering it one at a time that first I'm going to go pluck, pluck, pluck on the bass and let that loop. And then I'm going to run over to the drums. And, and Yeah, well, I don't, do, I don't do drums. I have the drum loop programmed in two sections. Sure. I layer the guitar, the electric, and then I play the bass for the song because to me the bass is the most important element in that song and then i loop the bass and then i'll play the saxophone on top of it but i hope to have a video of me doing that at some point in the near future i don't hold back on tones like in order to make the acoustic guitar 
be able to sound a bit like a drum kit or a kit bass drum, I have to run it through a compressor and, you know, spring reverb or something. You know, you can do that all digitally. But again, I like being able to twiddle the knobs instead of going through page and uh, hitting buttons and going through the digital parameters. I just like to be able to reach for, you know, the amount of spring reverb and just turn it up a bit. That's just me. There's a couple of friends I have who play and do looping and stuff, and I'm envious of their setup. They just walk away with an acoustic guitar and a gig bag and another bag. I'm carrying enough stuff for a band, but it's just me. I have our van full of everything you need for a bass player, a guitar player, a drummer, and a synth player, and a saxophonist, and acoustic guitarist. I have all that stuff, and it's just me. <laughs> so, Do you bring another person to watch the stuff to make sure it doesn't get stolen while you're bringing in more from the van? <laughs> I kind of do it in a way where I get some sort of help. But you know, a lot of people, when they see me do that, they go, you don't need a van. I go, well, maybe not for the music, but I need a band to help me carry my gear. But I, it's actually, I'm joking. I love the interaction on stage between a drummer and a bass player and a guitarist, and I miss it terribly, and I hope to play a couple more shows. Recently, Adam moved to Calgary, which is basically like the other side of the planet from Halifax. So, ah, Yes. Well, now you need somebody to play your exact drum parts. Or were you enough of a drummer at the time that there was some kind of like, I have some very definite things in mind here. No, I will play what I want to play. In Mirror, you mean? Yes. Or, well, I would say my brother and I, drums are hugely important and adam is an incredible drummer he's just you know very very musical incredible timekeeper and mir i would say it was probably one of the most difficult bands for a drummer to be in because my brother and i were hard on him we're just like can you do this can you do that can you do i'm sure he at some point would walk down going oh i love this band but i just wish they'd let me play (laughs) <laughs> because to me, the drums, the structure of the house of the song, it was really the drums had to be just right. And I wasn't by no means a call myself a proper drummer. I always loved the drums. But what you hear on Synesthesia is me really kind of digging into getting to play the drums. But in Mir, I played drums. My brother played the drums, but we we're nowhere near what I was on Synesthesia. So it was hard on Adam. So apology, Adam, if you're listening. So one thing on all three of these songs, we have a fade out, which is given that you're sort of being more natural in certain ways. What is more unnatural than a fade out than somebody coming and turning the long? And I noticed on electrical in particular, maybe this is another kind of 80s convention that I haven't heard, but it's a damn long fade out. It's like a full minute almost of this thing going down. You have a giant drum riff freak out. Like right before you can't hear anything else. But yeah, you can clearly hear that the, oh, the vocalist is starting another chorus that I'm not going to get to hear. Like that it doesn't just peter out right at the end. So, <laughs> well, secret, secret. I, I loved that stuff. I mean, I, some of my favorite drum rolls in some police albums, even Dire Straits, a huge Dire Straits fan, you hear this really cool thing, this really amazing lick that Mark Knopfler would play. And it was like, right. And you'd have to turn it, you have to go back and turn it up again. Well, it was like the engineer said, like, uh, I don't know if you want to keep that. And the the player's like, it was really cool. Well, okay, we'll put it during the fade out. We'll put it. Yeah. The fade out, ironically, has faded out. So I I think when I was doing that record, and even in Mir, we were never afraid of it. I don't know. Something about that repetitive thing, I think that must have come from, I mean, how many times do they sting sing so lonely or I can't stand losing you? I think it happens like, 
at least a hundred times. Well, in Dane, your life, it's a more traditional, I, I counted, it was a 17 second fade out and it's, it's over the string thing. And like, that's okay. That's a convention that's recent. That's not so crazy, but this long voyage seems unusual. So we should get toward our final song. So with Mir, you tried a lot of crazy stuff. People can look on YouTube where you would early on in what, 2001 or so, you're having these big concerts with strings in it and supporting that by getting other, as you say, more famous musicians to accompany you, you know, making it a collaborative thing so you can do it in an actual theater and not in a club. So what made you in 2008, so this is just as the band was wrapping up, right? Was this the last thing? This is after? It was the last thing we ever did. The Christmas EP, the Soldier's Carol Christmas EP 2008. And the one we're going to play from it is the last song on it, which, like the others, does have a Christmassy feel. It has some chimey. It starts out with talking about cold. There's some vaguely jingly, you know, so it is within the realm of Christmas tonality. But particularly this one, I thought I've just never heard a Christmas song that was kind of thematically anti-Christmas in terms of like, (laughs) isn't it weird that they took this guy and spread his teachings across the world and call it, so it's called The Chosen One. Yep. It was a really bold and cheeky thing to do this record because my family has never been religious and sort of staunchly atheist, if you will, really. But at first, not really, almost agnostic. But we always celebrated Christmas. We always celebrated, and Sri Lanka is a country that celebrates Almost everybody's, well, they're just constantly on holiday. It's, I think it has the most statutory holidays in the world. Every religion's holiday is a day off, and then there's the full moon, which is day off. So I think we grew up with always recognizing all of the different things. There was always a Christmas tree at my grandmother's house and stuff. But my dad was, and my mom were not religious. I sang in choir. I loved music. The Christian-based uh, music, you know, when you play at Christmas time in churches and everything, the choral stuff. Sure, that was how I learned to sing was junior choir and yeah. <laughs> no, I mean I was part of the main choir and I was part of the small little satellite choir and we went to churches. A beautiful time of year. It was amazing. I always wanted to do something with it. When it came down to starting writing the lyrics, I just couldn't stay away from giving my opinion which you know might not have been the right thing to do but in a way it was sort of like an album to say look we can enjoy these stories and we can enjoy the teachings of these different religions but let's not take them too seriously just remember that they're just stories and if you want to take the good teachings from them that's good but don't hang your hat on all of them and end up going to war and doing crazy things in the name of it and that's basically what I was trying to sort of inject into the lyrics, into this funny story. We played with the Symphony Nova Scotia. We played two shows, one here in Halifax and another beautiful little town. It's a coastal town called Lunenburg in this old church. And we played full symphony orchestra. It was probably the last big Mir show ever. And we'd sung a bunch of our songs, Mir stuff, and we played the chosen one. And afterwards... We had gotten, of course, it was a church, so there was a lot of people who had come who normally go there. And they just loved the song. And afterwards, they just said, do you have music for that? Do you have uh, sheet music for that? Because I'd love for our choir to sing the song. Because, you know, there's this beautiful melody, and we really loved it. And and I was kind of like, you sh- you can, sure, you can. I can send you this. Uh, you might want to just double check with the lyrics. Um, you might want to you know, feel free to modify them. But I mean, the entire song was about 
the story of this baby who was taken and had all this wonderful goodwill and the story was and then then people came in and tried to monetize it and then they made corporations out of it and then you could be the chosen one yourself because all that was was just someone with a great notion a great vision but don't let the world don't let the greedy corporate people come in and pervert your wonderful intentions into some big money-making machine that's what the song's about and it's just woman's going oh we should go singing about baby jesus it's like um i don't know you should probably check out the lyrics ask him do do you like the life of Brian? Are you okay with that? It's about the, <laughs> it's about the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I sent her the lyrics and I never heard back. And I felt bad because like it was not my intention to actually uh Sure. It's a nicely stated. There's nothing <laughs> No, I'm not saying your things suck. I'm just saying you know, but all the songs on that album, they all have a little bit of a dig. Even the most happy one, a song called All of Her Love. She's giving me all of her love for Christmas. In the verses, it's all about the over-commercialization of Christmas itself. Like, you know, we don't need all these these sales and everything. And The Soldier's Carol, same thing. That's probably got the most views of anything that I've done on YouTube. And in fact, it gets played every Christmas. In fact, right now, it's the most played in our uh, one station here, popular rock station it's the most requested Christmas, local Christmas song. It's about soldiers going away, but it's about the fact that they're going there unnecessarily. <laughs> Each one of those songs has a bit of a twist in it. I don't know where, why we made that album. It was this huge, huge snowstorm. And it was like snowing for a week straight here. And we were just holed up. We were bored. A couple of gigs had got canceled. So we decided, let's just make a Christmas kind of thing. We were just bored. And then it actually, that record... That CD, this little EP, got us our first Symphony Nova Scotia gig. Well, now I think you're morally obligated to upload the whole thing to YouTube or somehow make this stuff available because I see that the Mir material... Actually, if you look on Spotify for Mir, there are like five different bands called Mir, none of which are you. Mir was a very problematic name for us. Obviously, we named it after the space station. It means something in some other language, that like peace or joy or something. Yeah, it means peace and small village in Russian. And it's actually ironic that I ended up marrying a, a girl with Russian heritage. And in German, Mir is a form of to me. So our agent in Germany was super frustrated because every time he'd call saying, would you like to book Mir? People would think, would you like to book me for a gig? And he used to get, he's like, that is a very difficult name. We're going to call them Halifax's Mir. Yeah, Halifax's (laughs) Mir. So so they was Mir band. And then, and it's funny, I don't know if this happens to you, but I'm walking down the street or driving the car and I think of so many great band names that we could have, could have. uh, (laughs) And then a whole bunch of band names that we had on a list that actually now I see, oh, look, there's a band called The Streets. I remember Job saying that was a bad name. And there's someone, you know, like all these bands would come out subsequently and they're like, look, I told you that was a good name. Look, they're The Killers. Look at that. Look at The Killers. It's a great. Somebody said that was a bad, awful name. Anyway, I digress. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's really fun talking. All right. So here's The Chosen One to send people off. Enjoy. Merry Christmas.
Well, thanks again so much to Asif, super talented guy. And thanks to Nick Ede from Cutting Crew, who's the one who turned me on to Asif. Mir was actually the backing band for the Cutting Crew comeback album that I briefly discussed on my episode with him. Nick had described the band Mir as something like the biggest thing that never quite happened. They are well represented on YouTube. You can see some of their TV appearances. But you might have to dig a little at the moment to get the actual albums. However, the Synesthesia album is readily available on Spotify, iTunes, all the usual places. And very appropriately, of course, on vinyl. If you're that kind of person that's way into vinyl. I really hope you'll go to NakedlyExaminedMusic.com and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Go check out our Facebook page. And most importantly, come back and hear the upcoming episodes with Todd Long, Daniel Ash, Robbie Folks. I've been getting ready to interview Nick Kershaw and Jonathan Sagal with Ken Stringfellow from the Posies also coming up. You'll hear all this in the next couple of months. And we've entered the new year, of course. I, for one, have made plenty of resolutions to record more of my own original music. And I hope that these interviews inspire you to do the same. Or maybe you've never even written a song before. Just give it a shot. Until next time, this is Mark Linton Meyer signing off. <laughs>